nights in white satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send Beauty I'd always missed With these eyes before Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast. My name is Brett Arnold, at Brett Redacted on Twitter. I'm here today with my co-pilot, Jesse Hassinger, of course. Hello, sir. Hello. And we are here with only the most illustrious guest on uh, the New Flesh <laughs> Podcast. Uh, he hasn't been on this show in, in years. I think I'm going to say that. Multiple years, I want to say. I think it's been, it's been since, I think, early 2018. Was, was it Winchester? It was Winchester, yes, which I still like better than most everybody else. In classic Scout to Foya fashion. Hello, sir. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Uh, um, you're, you're recording, right? I don't have to fucking record? Yeah, I'm recording. This is one of those cool podcasts where I do everything. I know that there's some podcasts where they're telling their, <laughs> their guests to record their own tracks. I keep hearing about this. It's, That's yep. bullshit, man. It's craziness. <laughs> it's craziness. I can't imagine having to like actually do audio work and do levels and match up voices. I just do it all on one track, and if it sounds bad, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's my policy. Uh, so this episode, we are here. This is oh god, I've already I've lost count. This is Halloween movie number. Is it ten? I think this is ten. Yeah. Oh my goodness, we're in week ten of the Halloween franchise, uh, which is. Uh, this week's entry is Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Or if you're Scout Tafoya and one of the many people online who write about this awesome movie, uh, one of the best horror movies in the modern age, would you say that? I would say that. I mean, without hesitation. I would say not simply one of the great genre films, but one of the great films full stop. Um, because, you know, it's wonderful on g genre terms but it's also just like an incredibly um relentless depiction of a number of of conditions that i think um have really come to the fore since everyone's been trapped inside for the same reason oh for sure <laughs> um i think i think if anything it's it's it, 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 if i haven't been binging a lot of rob zombie in pandemic it's because they're they're so close to the kind of third rail of uh of neuroses and trauma that i think like wrapping myself up in that right now would just make me go insane <laughs> but uh i'm so glad you're I here to talk about yeah. this movie and rob zombie movies and uh the pandemic and all these things um jesse and scout i assume you guys know each other from film twitter if not other yes and, and in person occasionally and in person. He we um we both wrote for the L magazine and Brooklyn magazine, that's right? And I, I feel like I haven't seen you since the Irishman. <laughs> that is correct. We stood in we stood in line to get into the Irishman at New York Film Festival. Um, had a nice catch up over bagels that AA Dad was supposed to get us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember if he actually showed up with bagels on time. No, no, but I showed up with bagels. He did not show up to. You showed up with bagels. Yeah, that's what yeah. it was. That's what, yeah, I, don't wanna, I don't want to blame Alex for Classic not. Jesse showing up with bagels. <laughs> I, I, I remember that vividly because I drank a like 
blue raspberry ginseng Mountain Dew with my bagel during the Irishman, like a real dirtbag. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say um, I yeah, very no, specifically. I very specifically didn't drink anything before that screening of the Irishman. Were you at the same one I was? The nine a.m. or whatever, the eight a.m. Yep, or yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the first one on that Friday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, were there. yeah. It was great, and I didn't eat or drink, which was a good decision in that I didn't go to the bathroom, but a bad decision in that I was a very hungry boy by the end of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't mind because I was a regular. Yeah, a regular Reynolds Woodcock. That's <laughs> I was full of. Um, the magic of cinema, so it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we're here to talk about the magic of cinema today with That's Halloween cool. 2. I'm glad Scout is here because we're going to browbeat Jesse into liking this movie by the end of this podcast. Well, yeah, that's what I live for. <laughs> that's, that's the idea uh, behind this pairing. Um, this is a movie that I, ha- I hadn't seen since opening night in 2009, in, in which I'm pretty sure... I well, I was definitely working in a movie theater, so I probably screened it in some way. Uh, but m- my my reaction from this movie was, I thought it had one of the best opening scenes in any Halloween movie ever, like the most like visceral, horrifying thing. And then I was always mad because it was revealed to be a dream sequence. My little dumb 2009 brain couldn't handle it. <laughs> and now here we are in 2020. I've watched it again a few times actually this week. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm ready to join the 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 shiny chrome scout people. <laughs> all about I'm all about Halloween too. We're gonna talk about it before we get into Halloween too. There's something I know I want to hear about from Jesse. I don't know if Scout saw it. I certainly didn't. But uh, Jesse watched. I think he watched uh, the Michael Bay produced Songbird. I sure did. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh. Uh, yeah, I want to hear about that. Um, did any of you guys see the third Skyline movie? I I tapped out. No, I don't even know where to find it. I don't know where to find it either. Um, I haven't seen the first two, so I should start with finding those, which I think I know those I can find. Those those are yes, those can be got. But here's what I'll here's what I'll tell you: the first Skyline movie I remember as a nightmare of the worst people in the world getting like dismembered in the worst fashion possible so it was just kind of like a zero-sum game of you have to get to know shitty people in order to like enjoy them getting stomped you know on by who aliens. is top build in that movie who was once Donald, on this Donald podcast uh eric balfour <laughs> eric balfour was on this podcast uh yes he was on or actually it may have been my podcast with uh i'm gonna say her name a podcast of i had a podcast with lauren duca at one point and really? um Ow. i did and um, Sky, uh, uh, Eric Balfour, for some reason, was communicating with Lauren for some project, and I convinced her to get him to just like call in and do the show, whatever show we were doing. But it was is it for the tenth anniversary of Lie with Me? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what the fuck we talked about. I have no idea. Did you talk? Was he one of the Texas Chainsaw? He remakes? was, Did and you? I didn't even bring that up. I don't think because I, I, now that I think about it, I don't think it was on the horror podcast. It was definitely on that. The premise of that podcast was called Strangers from Twitter. Oddly enough, where I would talk to people I met on Twitter, which is kind of what I'm doing now anyway. But I um, say, isn't every podcast just yeah, called Strangers from Twitter? Pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Uh, that's what it's become but i never saw skyline but shout out to eric balfour for getting top billing in a movie in in the year 2010 it's pretty yeah. impressive the, the second one is fun um the third one i'm told is not as good as the second one but the second one is just a bonkers vod action movie where they're doing the raid style 
you know, martial arts against aliens. Oh, great. Um, yeah, it's fun. It's super fun. It starts off looking like it's going to suck. And then out of nowhere, they get sucked into an alien spaceship and it spits them out in like the Philippines. I'm like, all right, now we're, <laughs> now we're what cooking. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, I'm in. You just sold me on that better than yeah, any trailer I has. I think it's running on Netflix right now, even, I want to say. Absolutely. I've been meaning to catch up, catch up with it uh, at, out of my utter bafflement that someone made a sequel to Skyline, which at the time I remember being like one of the worst things I saw that year. <laughs> it and and that, it's good. Yeah. It's I good. like that the good. third one is just called Skyline with an S and a three at the end. Like a three for the E. There's no name recognition for the Skyline franchise. <laughs> Nobody fucking, you know, if you're not us, you don't fucking, you're not waiting for the third Skyline. It's not like the ring, you know? Skyline has the aesthetic of like, what is it called? An asylum knockoff movie. Like, absolutely. that is yeah. all I know about it. Just from like the posters and the fact that like they are that low rent, but some people like them for some reason. I don't know. I well, do you know the, the story behind Skyline? No, uh, please tell me everything. It was the it was the uh, American werewolf in London to battle L.A.'s The Howling. Those guys <laughs> yes. ran away with the special effects technology, and they were like, we can just do another movie for cheap, and we don't even need to make it good. And well, they were right. thankfully, they're both terrible. Yeah, they're both awful. I think I still, one of these days, I'm going to go and re-edit Battle L.A. to remove all of the dialogue, and it'll be a perfect movie. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that movie in theaters and I couldn't tell you a single thing about it. I remember that Aaron Eckhart remembers the names of all the guys he killed. <laughs> he has a big monologue where he's like, here's the names of everyone that I let die because I'm so bad at my job. Is but it the I'm names of aliens? Of... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all Big guys. Clark, Clark. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's uh, it's bad. The director of Battle L.A. went on to direct such films as the third Ring movie nobody asked for, apparently. Yeah. Jonathan Leesman made, he made Rings? Apparently. Oh, no, wait. Jesus. He, yeah, no, it, what is this? It's the Rings, the circle of, is this what it is? Did he direct Rings? Is that the right movie? I, he, I, I have no idea, but um, it's very funny to me that oh, he, no, he, directed from, a sh he directed a short called Rings. He didn't even direct the movie Rings. Oh no! Brutal, oh, but no. he did do TMNT, the the Michael Bay produced uh, CGI, I think. T uh, yeah, CGI where they have like super realistic penises and stuff. Oh, cool! <laughs> like my favorite video game, Cyberpunk, which I've been playing. Um, oh, Jonathan Leavesman, he also did uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Beginning to to bring it back right. to the New Flesh podcast and things that Jesse and I have talked about at length. Um, enough Texas about the beginnings. Texas Chainsaw at the beginning has my favorite opening ever because there's a title card that says 1973 or whatever, and then it immediately cuts to a woman wearing, like, brand-new underwear. Like, <laughs> brand-new, dated 2006. Yeah, I think we had a lot of fun with the time period of that one. It was the most lazy period detailing I've ever seen in a movie. It's pretty fucking bad. Anyway, sorry. Let's get to the actual podcast business. To the actual <laughs> podcast business. Um, I think I have news somewhere. Where is my news? Here it is. Most of the news this week is is like the Disney investor call <laughs> that, yeah. that happened because um, <laughs> I, I would love to get Scout and Jesse's take on this. Basically, 10 Star Wars shows were announced, I want to say, or was it 10 Star Wars things, including <laughs> including a movie? Are they shows or things? Who knows? Uh, I, yeah, I think it was 
it was 10 shows, but I don't know. I didn't count. I've stopped counting. Well, there's a movie called Rogue Squadron to be directed by Patty Jenkins of Wonder Woman. There's the most exciting thing. I I think it's so beautiful that a woman is finally directing Star Wars because up until now, I had assumed that if, you know, Lucasfilm was cutting someone a check with 30 zeros over the end of it, it was going to be a man. And it's just super cool that a lady can also take money from Star Wars. I just think that's a big win for feminism. A real hire more women guards argument. It really is. (laughs) Honestly, like, I saw people, like, super excited about that. I'm like, you guys, the only reason this shit is powerful in the first place is because you all agreed. It's it's not like, (laughs) they weren't, like, keeping women away from the project. It's just, like. I mean, it's run by Kathleen Kennedy. For Christ's exactly. Sakes. Exactly. Yeah. If they could have hired women at any point, they just didn't fucking feel like it, and now they did, and you guys all decided that that was important. And it's like, dude, the movie is still gonna fucking suck anyway. I don't know what you want. <laughs> like, there hasn't been a good Star Wars movie, period. And you guys are all excited because they're like, ah, yeah, the woman who made Wonder Woman, which fucking lined Steve Mnuchin's pockets and was <laughs> terrible. Like, I'm so excited for more fucking capitalism run amok. I'm so ready. This is the take I hoped for from Scout. <laughs> Now, Jesse, what's your take? I mean, a slightly you know, more balanced take. I would say it's more. <laughs> it's a little. It's it's uh it's more like a it's kind of a pathetic nerd take where I'm like I don't really like the the, the pilot ones that much. <laughs> it's funny you I say like, that. You know, I just I like bought it. the video game that's literally just the pilot stuff, the Squadrons <laughs> game. Um, it's just you know. I, I mostly like the pilots in Star Wars for, like, Wedge and Porkins and shit. I don't really care about, like, calling out maneuvers or whatever. Um, so it's not, like, the most exciting thing. I do like – I like Wonder Woman a lot, and I like I like how Pan Jenkins handled that movie. So Sounds I, I think like Jesse like, wants a 1984 screener. Yeah, I <laughs> – I fucking do. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm, I'm told I'm on the list, which I think is the list of people who will watch it on HBO Max. <laughs> yeah, that's what they mean, for sure. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, we yeah, see I mean, you I'm... have an HBO subscription, so you're fine. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, yeah, I like um, uh, the, I like her Wonder Woman movie. She, to me, is like a good choice for Star Wars, not because of like it, it being one, you know, one giant leap for womankind, so much as... She's like the exact level of director where I like what she does, but I wouldn't be disappointed if she was tied up doing Star Wars for three years. Like, I'd be like, okay, that's cool. It's not like a waste of her time because, like, that's the kind of movie she seems to want to do. Um, I'm not that interested in, like, fighter pilot shit. So, I mean, I, I was like, Lucas already did this with Red Tails. <laughs> what? Come on. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and the world <laughs> resoundingly rejected it. Yeah. Red Tails also streaming on HBO Max right now. shit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, I think also to, to, to release a Star Wars movie about pilots in the wake of Top Gun Maverick just feels superfluous because we'll all have been piloted out by that point. That's we'll true. all have gone out and bought F-18s and crashed them. <laughs> so there's just no, there's not going to be any more excitement left. We'll be yeah, a nation but... of Harrison Fords flying, <laughs> crashing planes out of the skies. Aren't we all? Aren't <laughs> It does kind of feel to me like they, I mean, I, I do love Star Wars junk. I, you know, I'm like an annoying Star Wars person. But uh, I do feel like that their one movie that they have on the slate is like very, it seems like it's designed to appeal exactly to the people who are like, Rogue One is the best Star Wars movie since Empire. And it's like the only thing I like because it's 
basically, you know, it's like military shit and like it's not for kids. And it's grim <laughs> and it ends with everybody dead at the end. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And I like Rogue One fine, but like it's, you know, it's maybe not my favorite of the of those kind of things. This seems like it's, you know, the idea is probably to get something more like that rather than, you know, I would rather see like the Ryan Johnson Star Wars that he supposedly was thinking about doing or whatever. Or like something that's like weirder or more like, you know, like... I like weird aliens and shit. You know what, Jesse? You're going to have to settle for uh, Ryan Johnson writing a book in 10 years about all the things he was going to do. (laughs) Because they are certainly not going to let him do anymore. (laughs) Is that a a correct take? Do we think that? Yeah. They're not going to let him do Star Wars again, and he wouldn't go back. They fucked him over so good because they were like, hey, listen, buddy, we love your movie. We're just going to make another movie to correct it. We love your movie so much, we thought... uh, Cat Turd 8 on Reddit did a better job, so we're going to take his <laughs> version and put that up. And, we are Brett, and Brett will see it in Dolby and love it. I, th- right. I think that there's so much of a cycle to these things that it's entirely possible that on the eighth course recorrection in 2030, they will go back to Ryan Johnson and be like, all right, try this now. Um, That's a good point. At that point. Time is a flat the, circle. The Twixt version of Star Wars. Yeah. Oh, ooh. Speaking of old people, they should throw Clint Eastwood one of these before he goes. I 1,000% agree. Are you kidding? With the fucking Steadicam and shit? Yeah. You can make a fortune Torino with Paul Walter Hauser. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I mean, not this is, I don't mean to be sizes, but like he could play a Porkins. I mean, like, (laughs) he could be someone related to Porkins. I I know that that sounded like a fat joke, but Paul Walter Hauser is one of the great actors. uh, He could bring life. Two Porkins. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. He could really enliven that in a way that maybe the, the previous guy didn't. I mean, there's so much, like, alien races for Clint Eastwood to be racist at. Like, oh, man. Think about Can it. Can you imagine? Yeah. It's him as a guy who runs a bar on Tatooine. And he's just oh, yeah. <laughs> refusing to serve team. everybody but old <laughs> white men. That's right. <laughs> Get the fuck out of this bar. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. He I'd comes up that. with some new slur we've never heard before, and we're like, wow. <laughs> it, this... sounds, it sounds real bad when he says it, but nobody knows what it means. Oh, God. We're having fun. Um, so Rogue Squadron was the only one I've mentioned so far. Thank God there's like 12 more. Hold on. There's the untitled Taika Watiti film, which, yeah, Scout threw up the middle finger at that one. I'm assuming he's not a Jojo Rabbit stan. Uh, no, not so much. Not so much. Uh, he, I think people like what he did with the Mandalorian episode or sodes. I don't know how many he's done. Tell me, Jesse. Yeah, I think he did one or two, and people like those. Um, and people certainly like the. I like I like this Thor movie a lot. I was not a big fan of Jojo Rabbit, but you know, sure. Like I feel like with Taika Waititi, you get the nerd-approved quirky Star Wars as opposed to the uh, nerd-enraging quirky Star I Wars. I mean, yeah, uh, like the like Ryan that. Johnson Star Wars has like Taika Waititi elements to it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the comedy, like the the stuff with Donald Gleason does feel like it's straight out of a Taika Waititi movie. Yeah. Like the comedy. Um, maybe I'm projecting. Anyway, I think the most interesting or the most exciting for Dork's probably project is this next one, which is the Star Wars Obi-Wan Kenobi show, which brings back um, Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan as well as Hayden Christensen as Darth Vader. Oh, man. Yeah. So is this something that people of I'm, I'm like dis, dismissively talking about people who like the prequels. I'm like, is this something you people enjoy, Jesse? 
<laughs> yeah, um, no, this is like the thing I want of the TV show I want to watch the most of any TV show because I love the prequels and I love Ewan McGregor and I've been really looking forward to it. Actually, the Hayden Christensen thing gave me pause, not because I don't like Hayden Christensen. I actually think he's kind of awesome, but I don't really know how you fit Darth Vader. Like, I wanted the show to be like Obi-Wan Kenobi solving, fucking off and solving mysteries on Tatooine and like not having anything to do with any, you know, like Skywalker shit. And just him like investigate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want I want twenty two episodes, twenty five maybe, uh, forty six minutes long each, forty two minutes long each. I know it wasn't getting that, but like to to, to stage this as like oh well, it's gonna be Obi Wan's rematch with Darth Vader. It's like what? No, he just, he could just be like questioning Doug's. How many more limbs can this guy lose? Exactly. Like I, I don't even know what does it even mean to have Hayden Christensen play Darth Vader when he's like gonna be. Yeah. In a suit. Yeah, I don't know. That's just weird. I think it's a yeah, great payday for Hayden, who doesn't have to show up very often. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He can just dial it in. Um, but I'm very excited because I just love Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I just have wanted to watch this kind of thing since, you know, since 2005, basically. Scout, what do you think about this one? I don't give a shit. I shouldn't have asked. I'm sorry. This was my bad. <laughs> I just... The Star Wars thing, it is so exhausting, and it's everywhere all the time, and yeah. like everything Star Wars now. And I'll I just, just breeze through the rest, because there's, really, <laughs> there's really nothing of note. Well, there's so many. Even someone like me who loves this stuff is kind of like, this This is too much. I don't want, I don't want this much. Well, what do you do when everything is Star Wars, and you're living, in a, you're living in a theme park, you know? Like, doesn't that sort of take the magic away from it or whatever? Like, you guys, like, there have been fucking 4,000 book tie-ins. Doesn't everybody already know everything there is to know about, you know, fucking the force? Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's sort of my, what bugs me out about this is that it kind of, these, I feel like at some point these shows are going to start feeling like the tie-in books, which I ignore because I just want to watch movies, you know? So, like, <laughs> I, I don't want to, like, you know, exactly. I don't want to, like, have every supporting character and everything then get their own series, that, and then that spawns several more series of supporting characters. But I like Star Wars stuff, so I'd Well, on that note, else. let me say what the next one is. It's called Ahsoka, <laughs> and it's uh, a character... I guess it's the Rosario Dawson character from The Mandalorian, who is a character <laughs> from the Clone Wars book, or the uh, yes. TV show, sorry. Yes. Um, and then there's... Oh, bless you, Scout. Thank uh, you. Thank <laughs> delayed, delayed reaction. Um, Rangers of the New Republic is set within the timeline of the Mandalorian. Um, I that, believe that I don't know if the, that she's gonna uh, transpose her way off of this, but the idea I think would probably to have Gina Carano in this because her character becomes a a, a ranger or a marshal or something of, uh, during Mandalorian, so it would make sense if they were trying to give her her own show. But who knows if they're actually trying to do that? Isn't she, uh, isn't she canceled because she is a fucking bigot? Yeah, that's what I was saying. Like, I don't know if you know. I don't know if she she transphobia her way out of this uh, being in in a, a pretty comfortable Star Wars position. But like, I I don't. No one's fired her, so who knows? I she's mean, the one from uh, one the Soderbergh Haywire. Yeah, she's from that's yeah right. from the from Haywire. From Haywire. And then a bunch of a bunch of DTV action movies that nobody but me saw. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> on all or any of any good. I love Haywire and like never re i saw like one of those dtv movies are any of them fun oh no god no they're all terrible <laughs> um the thing is is that gina carano actually she's not really an actor of any uh note right. so putting her in more movies where she has to do more talking was the wrong move um, yeah no I'm, 
I think Soderbergh is really good at, and I like her fine on The Mandalorian, which is does have her a lot, you know, doing a lot of punching and shooting and stuff. But in Soderbergh really knows how to use performers who maybe aren't like natural actors. Like there's, he gets a really interesting performance out of her in Haywire, but you're not going to get that from like some rando. No. So yeah, what's his name? John, um, the guy, the guy, well, <laughs> the guy who was the, the, the nice boy in Christine who later grew up to make uh, action movies set in Hawaii because he doesn't want to leave his front porch. Yeah. yeah. Um, John Stockwell, right? John Stockwell. Yeah, that's right. He, yeah, he, he, he didn't really know how to get a good performance out of her, and I don't really think he cared to. Yeah. <laughs> I think John Stockwell <laughs> likes getting high and making, uh, uh, you know, surfing ma- movies, and that's it. The material <laughs> doesn't call for it either. She can just coast, coast forever. Um, more Star Wars. Lando, a show about Lando Calrissian from Justin Simeon, creator of Dear White People. And a huge, Hello, Justin. And he's a huge Star Wars fan. Oh, Justin. Uh, Star Wars Andor, Ander, uh, a tense, nail-biting spy thriller created by Tony Gilroy. Oh, this sounds cool. Uh, Diego Luna reprising the role of rebel spy Cassian Andor. Oh, it's a Rogue One spinoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a uh, digital. Uh, Are sti- they going to spin it? He's, he's like five years older now. I mean, I know Diego Luna is timeless, but still. Fiona's- he's going to wear a lot of cloaks. That one has a sizzle reel if you want to watch that. Uh, the Acolyte, Leslie Headland of uh, Russian Doll is doing oh, a, that's a, a Star Wars show called The Acolyte. It's a mystery thriller that will take audiences into a galaxy of shadowy secrets and emerging dark side powers in the final days of the High Republic era. Then there's Star Wars uh, Lily Annam pours The Bad Batch. I'm just, that's a joke. <laughs> um, it's called The Bad Batch. It was a bad joke because I forgot what her name was and I didn't deliver it with the cadence of a joke. Anna Lily Amir Four. Thank you. Um, I really hated the Bad Batch, but I like it's so bad. I, I like, like her girl other stuff. Home. Yeah, I like Girl Who Walks yeah. Home Alone at Night. Um, the Bad Batch is about the elite and experimental clones of the Bad Batch, first introduced in the Clone Wars, as they find their way in a rapidly changing galaxy in the immediate aftermath of the Clone War. Members of the Bad Batch, a unique squad of clones who vary genetically from their brothers in the clone army, each possess... I'm, I can't do this anymore. I, I simply can't. That's, that's plenty, I they, think. Yeah, I'm done with that. Uh, then there's Star Wars <laughs> Visions, which is like anime. Then there's a droid... That's where they, they come to your house and they force your fucking eyes open, so you have to yeah. look at Star Wars. Star Wars Visions <laughs> is a Clockwork Orange-esque machine. <laughs> they come to your house. <laughs> Um, my favorite thing about this announcement is it's on StarWars.com. It's like the Lucasfilm projects revealed. The last one is just Willow. <laughs> <laughs> it almost looks like it's in the Star Wars universe now. It's, it's Star like, Wars, what? Willow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Weird. So yeah, yeah Star Wars Frodo, Visions anthology. Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer reprising his role as Mad Mardigan or whatever the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then there's the Droid story, which is like uh, the intersection of animation visual effects it's an epic journey that'll introduce us to a new hero guided by legendary duo r2 and c3po and then there's a indiana jones movie with harrison ford coming back and uh that's, that's all. Yeah, it's james mangold right Is james mangold yes. from the director of ford versus ferrari and uh walk the line and uh what logan is that his big mm-hmm. big one uh, yeah, yeah that's the big yeah. one I, I still, uh, again, in classic me fashion, if such a thing exists, I think his 310 to Yuma is lovely and oh, underrated. Oh, I saw that yeah, in theaters yeah, with my so father, funny. and we had a great time. 
Love that movie. Yeah, I think it's fun. Um, that's enough Star Wars news. Um, in that same announcement came another bit of news that is exciting for this podcast. Uh, there is an alien TV show coming. Before you get too excited, it's from Noah Hawley. Noah Hawley. Noah Hawley <laughs> of the TV show Fargo, uh, famously from the aspect ratio shifting film Lucy <laughs> in the Sky. The internationally known. Yeah, which I think <laughs> only, only the three of us, maybe even two of us, have seen that movie. You didn't see it, or did you? Lucy in the Sky. Who are you pointing? I'm pointing at you. Sorry, uh, Scout. Oh, yes. Um, I saw enough of it to know that I was not drunk enough to keep watching. Yeah, um, it's really bad. I think I walked out of that movie at uh, Lincoln Square AMC, which is not an easy one to walk out of. you got to scooch past people. As you say, a lot of old people you could have injured doing that. <laughs> yeah, so. I probably did, but I had to get out of there. You smashed some toes on your way out of Lucy and this guy. Yeah, um, it was really bad. I but, think that the, 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 I mean there is it should have been like more memed in the same way that like um, but again not enough people saw it I, I I feel the same way about um, Mark Wahlberg's Spencer Confidential where if anyone had seen it that shit would be memed night and day but they didn't so nobody knows about John Hamm jerking it with a glass of scotch to the Challenger disaster um, what which is, yeah I had no idea. <laughs> I know that Spencer Confidential was in the Netflix top 10. I think it was like the day it came out. They're like, uh, we have a top 10 now, and this movie's at the top of it. <laughs> you should watch it. <laughs> uh, well, Spencer Confidential fucking rules. It has um, Eliza Schlesinger, the comedian. Uh, oh. uh, she has sex with, with Wahlberg in a bathroom in Central Square in Cambridge, and when she climaxes, she says, go socks. And I think cinema is pretty much done now. That that yeah, we're, we're good. We're good. Uh, yeah, Noah Hawley's Alien. Uh, he also did Legion on FX, which had a great pilot, and then like I couldn't keep up with it because it was really up its own ass. I couldn't. Yeah. I knew it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what else do I have to say? HBO just announced they're rebooting True Blood for some fucking reason. A show that Is I Noah am... Hawley doing that too. No, he's not. Thankfully, it still has Alan Ball's name on it. I think. Uh, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa is behind the reboot, who's behind, like, Riverdale and uh, the new Sabrina. So it's probably going to be in that, like, CW style, probably. Um, Gross. Yeah, I love that show. I think that show got... It got so bad I couldn't even finish the final season. But, yeah, I'll be back. I'll watch it. I'll watch their shit that they that they throw at me. Um, I don't know anything else about it, but it's it exists. There's the news. Uh, there's another thing on HBO called The Baby, a horror comedy series that's a raw examination of motherhood as an institution, a set of unspoken rules that affect women differently depending on how they're viewed in society. This is from debut screenwriter Cian uh, Siobhan Robbins Grace, and uh, Nicole Castle of Watchmen has boarded the project. I like HBO's Watchmen. Sue me. No one is No one is litigating me. What it? Oh, you will? <laughs> I will. I will, sir. You oh, shit. fucking bastard. Uh, Dune director, Denis Villeneuve. I said it like uh, <laughs> Lights, Camera, Jackson. <laughs> Denis Villeneuve. I, I, I'm, I was never proud of, more proud of myself than when I worked in a Lights, Camera, Jackson uh, reference into the, uh, uh, fucking my review of Stardust. <laughs> <laughs> Was he even a, a blink in his father's eye when that movie came out? 
<laughs> yeah, he's still a, he's a young child. Why are we making fun of this? Oh, he's a, he's an adult now. He no, can he's take like it. A, he's fully thirty years old at this point. I think. <laughs> yeah, no, Light Camper Guy his... just turned fifty. I went to his over the whole part. <laughs> and his review style hasn't changed at all. <laughs> yeah, he's still doing weird little walk along musicals to review things in his neighborhood in fucking Calabasas or wherever he lives. <laughs> He lives, he's, I don't know if he still lives there, but he's from Albany, New York, which is not far from where I grew up. So you can imagine how I feel about him. So you're going to give him an ass whooping if you see him at the drive-in? <laughs> <laughs> I saw him once at a screening of Frozen in New York. He like came down from Albany to see Frozen. Wow. Jesse, you got to let it go. <laughs> <laughs> um, Denis Villeneuve basically blasted the HBO Max deal, joining the chorus of, uh, who is it now, like Chris Nolan? Judd um, Apatow, uh, a bunch of people. Everyone who has a stake in this and is a director is pretty much saying it's it was a dumb idea and they were not consulted. So we talked about that last week. Just wanted to give an update there. Um, Ready or Not and Scream Filmmakers Radio Silence will also be directing a horror movie for MGM called Reunion. Uh, in Reunion, the horrific experience of high school reunions is taken to a new extreme when a group of uninspired old friends become the only hope for survival against an unwelcome shape-shifting creature cool i'm a fan of radio silence bring it on um yeah in addition to the star wars news there's a crazy spider-man news this this week we found out recently that there was going to be like it sounds like they're like multiversing the spider-man yeah. live action movie they're doing what into the mold the whatever spider-verse movie did in animation but they're bringing like Jamie Foxx's Electro from The Amazing Spider-Man's in it for some fucking reason. Uh, it's actually not him. They're just going to use the DVD case, which was his head, the mold of his head. I don't know if you saw that. It's going to be that. Of course. Yeah. Um, and then Alfred Molina, who played Dr. Octavius in Spider-Man 2, uh, Raimi's Spider-Man 2, is now in this movie, along with, like, Mary Jane, uh, Kirsten Dunst's Mary Jane, I guess. So, like, and Tobey Maguire and all them. Yeah. yeah, what's going on with this movie? Does anyone know? I mean, I might see it now. Um, <laughs> yeah, it sounds interesting. Jesse, do you know? Like, I, I, I don't know. My strong suspicion is that most of these people will not be in this movie for very long. <laughs> I yeah. feel like they're going to be in it it's for It's like, like, remember when Paul Giamatti seconds. was touted as being like the star of Amazing <laughs> Spider-Man 2, and he's in it sure, for like 40 seconds? Giamatti, Spider-Man. Yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I, the only thing that makes me think that these people are going to in, in this movie for longer than two minutes is that I read something about Tobey Maguire holding out for some massive payday, uh, and I couldn't tell if they meant like because he was could it was in the position to demand you know ten million dollars or something for for more than two minutes or what? Um, it seems really premature. Like there's plenty of stuff they haven't done in these in the Marvel version of the MC version of Spider Man to suddenly do the Hail Mary of bringing in all these Spider-Mans from other movies, but I'm into it. Like, it seems like a fun, I feel like it's also a, a, probably an agreeable way for them to do some kind of offshoot where Sony can continue to make their own 
Spider-Man related movies that are not in the MCU, but claim that they're tied in in some way, like Venom and that, or that Jared Leto monstrosity or whatever. I assume that's really like the motivating factor here is to be able to say, oh, we have our own Spider-Verse with, with Sony that, that doesn't require the MCU's permission to do stuff. Uh, but whatever, I like, I love the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans and I love the wrongheadedness of bringing anything in for Amazing Spider-Man. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. You know what nobody's talking about? What? happened to morbius where's the morbius movie <laughs> it was there was a trailer i mean it's i know it's, like it was supposed to be a thing and then COVID happened and now i haven't heard a peep <laughs> oh you didn't hear the movie got COVID and died <laughs> oh no <laughs> they should turn it into a vampire or something i don't know what the premise is the trailer was so creepy just like jared leto looking like gaunt I don't know. Yeah. Jared Leto looking is always bad. Um, he blocked me on Twitter, you guys. Oh, he followed. What, he followed he, you on Twitter. He blocked me on Twitter. Oh, blocked and you. I don't know why. It was years and years ago. I must have been <laughs> mean. Right. My blocked Twitter uh, list includes him and that guy who directed Detention. I hate that movie. Oh, jo- oh Joseph. Oh, that guy sucks. Jo- uh, uh, Khan. Yeah, he hates me. Um, I got blocked by Scott Derrickson because I kept making fun of his church camp ass. Dude, yeah, I I don't like him either. It's funny, he's on my list of news today. He and C. Robert Cargill just signed a first look TV deal with Blumhouse. Is it just going to be them doing screenwriting bromides for an hour each week? (laughs) (laughs) You burnt! (laughs) Damn. Uh, There's the projects uh, that they have Let's see. Crooked Highway has several television projects in, in development, including Full Body Burden, inspired by Kristen Iverson's book, which tells the true story of a deadly government secret hidden in plain sight. Uh, the Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant just outside of uh, Denver, Colorado. Also in the works is Midnight Radio, in which an off-the-grid radio host begins to piece together the connections between various supernatural experiences described by his callers. Okay, Pontypool ripoff. Uh, I like that movie better when it was called The Numbers Station. Thank yeah. you very much. Uh, the Devil's Detective, based on Simon Kurt Unsworth's novel, tells the story of a human investigator who navigates the intricate bureaucracies of hell to solve high-profile murder cases amid a populace of angels, demons, and the damned. So this is basically the pitch that Charles Bromesco and I are always talking about, which is that we want to see a movie set in a Hellraiser world that's all the bureaucracy and like the <laughs> the... like binders of papers that have to happen and all that shit that is like kind of talked about at the beginning of the most recent hellraiser movie but then they it it seems like they used all their budget on the hell sequence in the first 10 minutes and then didn't have anything to do for the rest of it that's my review of that movie um (laughs) more quick hits news before we get into uh what jesse watched and then halloween 2 and what scout watched if there's anything worth mentioning that's new um guillermo del toro produced antlers directed by scott cooper is moved yet again. It is now oh, okay. off the release schedule entirely. Um, damn it. Just yeah. fucking release Just put man. out what the movie. It's Carrie Russell, Jesse Plemons. I've heard good things about it. It's based on a short story by Nick and Tosca, who did Channel Zero. Uh, people say what this movie's cool. What I don't understand is nobody but me saw Hostiles. So what are you fucking waiting a fucking theatrical release for? <laughs> oh my god, I had totally forgotten that movie existed. I did see it, though. Yeah. But it was on yeah. a screener, and then, yeah, I never thought about it again. Like, literally, Out of the Furnace, I really enjoyed. Um, me too! His country, mu- his country music movie was pretty good, I remember. And Cra- then Is he Crazy Heart? Is that him? 
Crazy Heart, yes. Um, and then Black Mass was bad. Oh, um, yeah. And, and I just don't know what, what are you afraid of with VOD? It's a horror movie. Like, yeah, it'd be cool to watch yeah. in theaters, but like, it's over, dude. It's like, over. Sell the it to Shudder or something. Yeah. Yeah. Sell it to Shudder. Yeah. They would, they would fucking, they would, they would clean your car to get that movie. Yeah. They'll, <laughs> they would do it well too. Um, yeah. or they would treat it well. Um, last bit of news for horror video game fans. Evil Dead, the game was just announced. And it's Bruce Campbell's back. All the characters from Ash vs. Evil Dead are in there. Kelly Maxwell's in there from the show. Uh, Marcus Gilbert's Arthur from Army of Darkness is in there. And Richard uh, Demanicor's Scotty from the originals in there. So it seems like it's a, you know, ye- it spans all the years and uh, versions of Evil Dead. And it looks kind of fun. It'll be on PlayStation 5 and Series S, uh, Xbox Series X, but also on the old consoles and Switch. Looks kind of fun. All right. Before we get into Halloween 2, uh, Jesse, did you watch anything? And I know you did. What was it that I, I watched? Did, I watched Songbird. Yes. Um, the, un, the, the unfairly tagged Michael Bay pandemic movie, because Michael Bay did not direct or write this movie. He produced it. But I do admit, after feeling bad for the filmmakers that they were being mistaken for Michael Bay, that it is of his sensibility in the sense that it is this bizarre pandemic set mishmash of, uh, you know, sort of like libertarian uh, philosophizing and might makes right, like fascism, and also with a little bit of like completely phony, cynical, like hope slash uplift to cap it off at the end. It's a movie about um, four years into our pandemic. It extrapolates out from really from when it was probably written in like May. uh, (laughs) where the the, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, from like March fourteenth. That's when the, that's when this draft must have been completed. Um, it's, it's about how the pandemic has continued for forty years. Uh, we're now on in the movie in the world of the movie. You're on COVID twenty three. There's lockdowns everywhere. Um, it's if you get sick, you are taken to the Q zone, the terrifying quarantine camps that you should be afraid of the government sending you to. Um, and it's about a guy who's immune, played by Archie from Riverdale. Uh, who is not even immune to bears. No, this stars Archie from Riverdale? (laughs) Yeah, it stars Archie from Riverdale, and the first time I've ever seen him with a hair color that makes, like, it looks like it's natural, maybe. I don't know. Um, And he's a messenger. The kind of one germ of an interesting idea in this thing is that what the the thing you can do if you're immune and not rich uh, is basically just deliver packages to people, um, which felt true to me. (laughs) Yeah. In, in that Sounds kind like that's like, stranding that fucking yeah. <laughs> Kiryu Hojima game. It's like a yeah, so it's like that kind of that kind of that aspect of the dystopia I thought was actually like a germ of a clever idea. Um, but anyway, he's in love with this girl who's not immune. They've never met. They've only chatted and like sometimes hang out on the opposite side of a door. And so it, it's actually as much as it sort of tries to be a dystopian sci-fi romance with these two, it's really much more of a like a you know, Babel or Crash style, like there's like seven or eight major characters who are kind of, whose lives are connected in different ways. It's not like, it doesn't spring it as a surprise or anything, but that's sort of the, you know, the kind of structure of it. that's like that? It's like the title's like The Time, like 1127 or some shit. Have you seen Oh, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like oh, where they all intersect at some point. Yeah, it's it's really much more like an internet paranoia movie, actually, where there's like men, women, and children or something. Where oh, it's God. Like, where Adam where Sandler has to talk to his kid about wanking it. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's not as good as that. But 
<laughs> no one in this movie gives as good a performance as Sandler in that movie. But it's so it's you know kind of a ensemble drama slash thriller. It's very incompetent, right down to like making the world of the you know extrapolated out pandemic make sense. Archie is immune, but he can still care, like transmit it to others because it can get on his clothes maybe. So he's just as isolated, but also is allowed to roam free. And you can only do that if you have a bracelet and there's a market for bootleg bracelets. But everyone also has an invasive app that can tell you if you're sick immediately with seeming real accuracy. So the idea that you need these bracelets is bizarre. The idea that you can't contain something when you have instant testing universally across the population makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Um, and then beyond that, just like kind of nitpicky stuff, it's a terrible movie with terrible... Uh, terribly underdeveloped characters and lots of like, this is so immediate because we're shooting it with an iPhone for parts of it or whatever. It's just, you know, it's just a bunch of bullshit. And then it ends, it does, I, I'm going to spoil the last line for you guys and tell you that it ends with Archie from TV's Riverdale. What, what's <laughs> but, uh, saying that uh, we thought we were delivering packages, but we were really delivering hope. Get the fuck, fuck yeah. out of here. No. <laughs> that's rules. Are you kidding, yeah. man? The rebellions are built on that, I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the especially funny thing is that he doesn't deliver dick the whole movie. He delivers a few a few things to rich people. It doesn't deliver anything. It's it's not even hope. It's a terrible movie. It's one of the worst of the year. I'm going to do a worst of the movies of the year list this week. And it will be on it. So don't spend 20 bucks watching this movie even for a hate watch. Who it's a bad one. Who is the intended audience for this? Like, I don't understand. Like, who's going to want to watch? No who's going to want to wallow in that? People with uh, money, I think, is that they want their money. The people with money to give their money to this movie. I don't. I really don't know who the, who the audience is. I imagine it's sort of, kind of, sort of aimed at the demo that watches Riverdale, which is... 40-year-old creeps like me, uh, but also maybe teenagers. <laughs> no. um, so I think that's kind of the idea is that it, – because it's, it's just stupid in the way that you – when you think your audience is stupid, and I think the audience that it's easiest for filmmakers to believe is stupid is teenagers. So I just was assuming that was the audience. I think there is, there is like shrewd marketing logic behind it, but you can't, you can't do this because the people that you would – want to appeal to don't have this movie's bewildering politics <laughs> so you can't you, you can't sell a movie to the people who were like oh yeah i just want like horror movies or whatever because they want escapism and so instead you make a movie about the thing that they're all suffering through yeah and, and then you give it this like bizarre libertarian bent and you cast like you cast archie sure but where the fuck are all the advertisements for this movie if archie is actually a big deal can I say that Archie, by the way, has one of the strangest careers that proves that you can make a good living doing nothing that no one knows about? <laughs> where his movies include A Dog's Purpose, which is a Christian dog movie, um, or possibly a Buddhist dog movie. I didn't fucking see it. Um, the Hate You Give, which was like a big deal only online. Like nobody in the world was talking about it, but everybody online was talking about it. The yeah. Last Summer, which who fucking knows? I still believe, I believe a Christian country music movie yes. that was slipped mm -hmm. in under the radar. Yeah. Dead Reckoning, directed by, <laughs> what's his name, Andre Barkowiak, um, who was uh, a, a, a cinematographer once upon a time. He was, I think he shot, um, uh, uh, what the fuck is the name of that movie? Um, Flatliners. Oh, the new one? Um, 
No, the old one. Okay. Um, the Joel Schumacher one. He was Joel Schumacher's favorite cinematographer. Um, and now he makes bad direct-to-video movies. And Dead Reckoning, which is a movie that I will absolutely go to the mat for, is the deep, the stunningly stupid movie inspired by the Boston bombing starring Scott Adkins as an Albanian horny terrorist. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> It's uh, uh, um, Olivia Hussey's daughter, India Isley, lives with her extremely horny lesbian aunts because her parents were killed in a terrorist attack. Um, and so these two women are constantly talking about getting laid. And <laughs> she meets she meets Archie, who's like the sensitive new kid in town. And his brother shows up in a yacht, like a big party yacht, being like, hey, my man. Like he's literally like like an, like an Andy Samberg character from a digital short. Except he's also a bloodthirsty terrorist. <laughs> he comes to destroy Nantucket. It must be seen to be. Wow. He's such a he's a weird like I think he's of the James Vanderbeek model of like people must like this right but but he doesn't really KJ Apa doesn't really work in movies I don't think. No, I agree. He doesn't really have a movie face, and neither did Vanderbeek. Um, he Vanderbeek was also in a couple of like DTV horror movies that I enjoy. He was in a movie where like all the children in his little town grow murderous, um, called The Plague. I want to say, which is not a bad flim, um, but uh, it's it just kind of proved that they didn't know what to do with Austin. Uh-huh. Awesome. <laughs> so Songbird, no good. No, no, thank you. Okay. Um, all right, I'm ready to talk. Uh, I guess uh, I watch anything we're talking about besides Halloween 2. Oh, I'll give a shout out to. Um, I talked about seeing The Godfather last week, I think. Um, oh, Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal is on Amazon oh, yeah. Prime, and it's worth watching. Really great performance from Riz Ahmed. Um, it's a movie about a drummer who like loses his hearing and like what that's like for someone who like makes their living you know, doing something that involves hearing. So it is a really empathetically made movie and very deeply felt, really great performances. And it goes on a little long for my taste, but I really enjoyed it. And that's on Amazon yeah, Prime. Yeah, it's a yeah. good movie. Um, very strong performance. I also saw Promising Young Woman, but um, I think Jesse and I will save that for another time. Or Jesse already talked about that, actually, I think last week. Old hat for me. It is old hat. Um, <laughs> I it's, it's a crazy movie, in my opinion. Like... It's not very good. It's just such a weird... Promising Young Woman wants to have its cake and eat it too with regard to its lead. Like, I don't understand that it wants her to be, like, this badass character, but also she doesn't do anything really badass at all. Um, It's confusing. We'll talk about it at some point, maybe. Scout, do you have anything you (laughs) want to mention before we get Uh, to Halloween 2, which I expect you to do a lot of talking about? Yeah. Um, no, I'm with you on Godfather. Um, I liked I'm Your Woman on Amazon Prime. I thought that was pretty good. That's um, on my list. I meant to watch that. Yeah. Um, gosh. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. We're doing, like, it's it's end of the year times, so yeah. it's, it's like I'm sure everybody's talking about the same 17 movies or whatever. I know. That um, bugs me. It bums me out, especially this year. It feels like it's really the same few. And, it really uh, Usually we do a best of the year on this podcast. I guess I might figure out that out we already skated by the the thanksgiving deadline for the episode we do called the turkey shoot where we do the movies uh that we were looking forward to the most that let us down so i totally forgot about that so maybe i'll do a bonus episode of that talking to myself for the patreon episode and speaking of patreon i'm glad i brought that up thanks brett um (laughs) i just recorded like minutes before this one i just got off the phone with justin dick the director of anything Anything for jackson Jackson. that was fucking terrific 
great movie. I watched it again to like make sure I wasn't delusional, and it's really great. And Justin Dick is a great, really nice guy, and it's a really great chat. It'll be on our Patreon episode when you listen to this. It's already up. Um, it's worth subscribing, in my opinion, for this episode because uh, Justin talks about going from making, um, you know, Christmas movies. He's made like thirty of them, and like uh, kids and family movies. His first movie was called Monkey in the Middle, and he talks about working with a prima donna monkey. Um, so a lot of cool discussion and he talks about how he ended up making this horror movie that actually fucking rules and is now available on Shudder they fucking acquired it and just put it out for the world to see I love it so much if only the world were so simple (laughs) the rest of the time Uh, so yeah uh, that's on the Patreon episode uh, Patreon stream now uh, Patreon feed what am I saying me and Justin G. Dick Uh, that was a fun chat I had to we had to stop it three or four times because he kept getting doorbell rings and I kept getting doorbell rings and then my alarm went off. It was a nightmare. But a uh, fun episode. And now, 52 minutes in, 53 minutes in, <laughs> we are ready to talk about Halloween 2 or Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which I believe on the posters was called H2 at the time. So I don't know where to begin. I think I will ask Jesse what your experience with this movie was prior to today. Had you seen it before? Or did you, excuse me, or did yes. you watch it again for a prep? Uh, lay it on me. Yeah, so you know, you may recall from last week's episode that I had a very clear memory of the circumstances under which I saw the original Rob Zombie Halloween. Yes, I do recall. And not that much about the movie. This time, I have a very clear recollection of some of you know the actual experience of watching the movie in terms of how I was receiving it as it played. I have no fucking clue when, why, <laughs> or how I actually saw it, except that I did see it in the movie theater, and I think Marissa, my, my wife, then girlfriend, must have gone with me because we go see horror movies together. I don't know why we went to see it. We didn't particularly like the earlier one. I didn't like... I liked Devil's Rejects okay, but I'm not a big Rob Zombie guy. But we did dutifully go. It must have just been because it was Labor Day weekend and there was nothing out. I don't know. Um, so I had seen it years and years ago when it came out, 11 years ago. And I rewatched it for this. Um, and I did remember liking it more than the first zombie Halloween. Um, I wrote, actually even wrote about it in the in the L magazine where Scout and I both used to write. Um, when I had some leeway to just write about shit that I wanted to write about, I wrote a review about Halloween 2 and the Alexis Bledel vehicle post-grad. Oh my which God. I will post on Twitter <laughs> accordingly. Um but I, I kind of liked the movie. I wasn't like wild about it, but I definitely liked it more than the than its predecessor. Uh, so I rewatched it for this. I was kind of looking forward to it because I did enjoy the Zombie one a little more upon rewatch. And I so I just recorded it off cable because I'm cheap and uh, <laughs> I the, love the, it. the Paramount Network HD <laughs> um, showing of Halloween two. And I discovered after I watched it that what I watched was this bizarre hybrid of a TV. It was like a TV cut of the director's cut. Uh, it's not as long huh. as the director's cut that was all over DVD, but it has the same ending and a few other changes from the director's cut, while a few other things that I was looking up afterwards are not changed. It's very huh. strange. Um, I don't know. It's like this. It's like a 95-minute version of the director's cut. Like there's even a small thing where, in I guess in the in the theatrical cut, it's uh, two years later, yeah. the movie in, in the in the director's cut, it's one year later. Yes. This again had many of the same changes as the director's cut, but it is 
was whatever the theatrical version was one year later, I guess, instead of two. Um, just like weird stuff like that. But it does have a different ending, which I, I watching it, I was thinking, I don't really remember this ending, but uh, yeah, cause it's I pretty confirm- memorably d- d- crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's distinct from, from the theatrical ending. Um, and this time I did, you know, like much like the first one, I, I would say it bumped up a little bit in my estimation. I don't love it. I think there's so much zombieism in it that it's hard for me to really embrace it because just some of his stuff, I just, some of his like personal touchstones, the stuff that annoys people about directors I love, like Wes Anderson or Steven Spielberg or whoever, um, the zombies versions of those, I just don't like very much. Two guys driving a coroner truck talking talking (laughs) about about fucking corpses yeah i I, see i can't get enough of that stuff um (laughs) it's 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 the the thing that i love the most about rob zombie is that his normal is something that like it's it's like it, it was like he he took a bunch of deleted scenes from movies like macon county line and rituals and rolling thunder and in the margins of all of that is where normal behavior happens in his movie. <laughs> so it's like corrupt prison wardens and strip club owners and Frankenstein masks. Like that's, <laughs> I fucking, I love so much that that's like, that's just the regular shit going on. Where, you know, it's not even, it's not even the plot. <laughs> that's just the horror stuff. That's just like the, the non-horror shit. Yeah, it's is the like window dressing. disgusting, horrible stuff. Exactly. <laughs> And some, I, of that, yeah. some of that works for me. Like, I, I definitely, I really, there are things I really responded to, but also watching the what I, the sort of director's cut that I watched, I think it lost a little bit of what I remembered really vividly, which was some of the female friendship in the first iteration of this movie. The, you know, we'll, we'll get into it, I'm sure, but like the relationship dynamic that shifts between, in the, in the regular cut to director's cut, between Laurie Strode and her friend Annie is like a lot more sour and it's interesting, but it's also like, I think it does lose some of what he's kind of, what I found really unexpectedly delightful about Halloween two in general is that he, for all of his like grotesquerie and stuff that I really am not into, he does, I think, I think I respond the most to Halloween two of any of his movies that I've seen, because it's the one where I feel like he, he likes, he and I like the characters a similar amount. <laughs> I think yeah. he likes the characters in Devil Reze- Devil's Rejects a fuck of a lot more than I do. And uh, <laughs> I think there's other supporting characters where he's maybe kind of nasty to them. But in Halloween 2, the girls in Halloween 2, I'm like, yeah, he and I both find these girls like fun and like in, you know, full of humanity and, and that kind of stuff. So I really enjoyed that aspect of the movie. And on the whole, I would say this is like one of the better Halloween movies to uh, like <laughs> at all told. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for my for my money, this is the best Halloween movie, and I don't I don't really dislike any of them. Like, I <laughs> I like I, I think the only one that I really don't feel the need to watch again is the one with Lance Guest, the original Halloween two, mm. because the the drop off in quality versus expectation is like so visible. It is so obviously not a John Carpenter movie, but it looks like it because they shot it so close to yeah. the original. They got so much of the same crew. The music is just as good, but the movie just fucking sits there because Rick Rosenthal really wasn't much of a director. Still isn't, uh, from what I can tell. Um, yeah, no, I really think he improved upon Halloween 2 with Resurrection. <laughs> it just needed some Buster Rhymes. That's all he was missing. <laughs> Even Resurrection I would watch again. Oh, for sure. I'd like Resurrection more than 2 probably upon revisit. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, 
this this to me, I think, is is a movie that, like the best of Rob Zombie stuff, feels like a whole ecosystem that he created. Um, and so you've got yes. the town of uh, of Haddonfield, which looks fucking beautiful. Brandon Trost shot this movie, and it just is gorgeous. Totally, but by beautiful, you mean like Rob Zombie beautiful. So like really fucking <laughs> d- disgusting. Admittedly, yeah. yes, yes, like 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 sad and dying. Yeah. Haddonfield um, looks. It, it doesn't look like a like a nice midwestern town anymore. It looks like a no. hellscape. If, exactly, which is what I what I come to Rob Zombie for is is to turn America into a sad hellscape. Um, but like unlike the the Devil's Rejects trio, this takes place in the winter in the middle of nowhere um, surround like in, in like the kind of like middle, middle country, middle of nowhere, the kind of all the foliage and everything is, is gorgeously autumnal. The setting has this kind of unforgiving wintry quality. And I just like, I, this is absolutely, despite the fact that it's like brutal and scarring and really, really complex emotionally and in dealing with Laurie's trauma and Annie's trauma and the kind of, soullessness of the Samuel Loomis character. It's a very difficult film to watch, but it's also extremely comforting for me to watch because all of the texture is perfect. I love that this is a comfort watch for you because it is is truly like brute force, hulking WrestleMania Michael Myers kills people so fucking hard in this movie that their faces look like the infected from, like, a Resident <laughs> Evil game or, like, a Last of Us. Like, these people's faces are just, like, like mush. I, and yeah. especially in the director's yeah. cut deleted scenes, there's that one guy, the bouncer from the strip club, whose face really gets a stomp. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff Daniel Phillips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he really and then, gets and the worst of it. Up, he hangs him up with LED lights afterwards, and you can see it some more, and it's just, yeah. like couple of weird lines yes. where facial features used to be this movie yeah. wallows in that type of shit like just absolute mutilations that's so horrific it bodies on it borders on body horror yeah um and i love that about this movie and i love that like rob zombie has successfully to me at least made michael myers into the fucking inhuman shape that every one of these other movies is trying to like get at which is like he's not he's not this human thing. He's this force. The thing that Loomis is always yelling about him. This is the only <laughs> time I've ever felt that way. Where I'm like, this motherfucker. Like, look at the way he's stabbing Octavia Spencer. Oh my god! Jesus, it is shit. the most brutal yeah. shit. The guttural noises he makes that Rob Zombie <laughs> yeah. leaves in. That it's like, ugh, ugh. like yeah. you hear you hear every <laughs> grunt, and it truly is horrifying to me. Like I I I'm just watching this thing like. It'll, it made me wonder, like, as someone who loves horror, I'm like, did the MPAA just not watch this? <laughs> can, they, can they, like, saw off the edges here for me? This is so fucked up. Um, it truly is, like, pushing the boundaries on all that stuff. So, like, it will please slasher fans in that respect. But I love that it's this empathetic movie that doesn't, like it doesn't like the violence you know what i mean like even though it, it's rob zombie gleefully doing all this stuff the movie is there's there's something under it that makes it feel okay and like rob zombie's like getting at something that is not just look at all these tits and gore yes i i i agree with you 100 but essentially it's a movie that it needs to be unsparing 
and horrifying because a like jesse was saying he likes these people and it has to hurt when bad things happen to them in order for this to be more than just a sequel i mean that was the thing he didn't want to make this but they were like we're doing it with or without you so you can get yeah. on board or not and he's like all right fine i'll do it but you're not gonna like it yeah and it's it is absolutely the kind of movie that you couldn't possibly i remember they were talking about uh john Gulliger or no what's his name uh yeah john Gulliger. John Gulliger was supposed to make the third one, and then they were going to give it, I think, to Patrick Lucier. Yes. And, like, you just can't – you can't follow this. Yeah, it was – and it, the funniest it, thing about it is it was called Halloween 3D, and it was supposed yeah. to be, like, you know, the final destination that just came out and made a bunch of money. So, like, it was, like, they're just giving everything the 3D treatment. And announcing the 3D sequel as the sequel to this one is so fucking yeah. funny. It's fucking <laughs> hilarious. Like you can't, you can't do it. And yeah, I remember the 3D Vogue from that time and all that. And this was like, like right on the cusp of this. It's funny to remember that this was the same year, and indeed, I think within two months of Avatar being released. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is, yeah, because this is this is a movie, you know, in as much as sequels are about, you know, the same things happening to the same people. This is a movie where somebody is still living with the scars of the first movie, like in Annie's case, on her face. Yes. And literal in, scars and figurative scars. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, they're so traumatized by this that like every day is a chore. You know, just getting through dinner without throwing up is frequently impossible. Like it is a movie that is hyperbolically trauma fixated and also about this kind of self-annihilating therapy that people take upon themselves just to survive and i feel like that's the reason this movie had the second life that it did where initially it came out it got like middling reviews and didn't make a whole lot of money idiots Um, like me were like it's all a dream it's stupid (laughs) (laughs) but then i think that the more the people especially when the director's cut was released um, I like I remember um, the, the, the review that made me interested in this because at the time I was totally agnostic vis-a-vis Rob Zombie. I didn't like House of Thousand Corpses. I had been avoiding Devil's Rejects. I didn't really get it. And then Keith Phipps wrote a review for the AV Club and it was like a C plus or something. It wasn't even like a rave, but he was like, Rob Zombie is the best director of bad movies in the world. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> so I went and I saw it without having seen his first one. And I was transfixed. I was like, something is going on here. This is not normal. This is not a regular movie. And I was, like, absolutely hooked. And just kind of like that song you can't get out of your head. I was, like, I, it stayed with me forever. And then Lords of Salem came out, and I was like, fuck this rule. Yeah, this I love is, that one, too. I fucking love Lords of Salem. Um, and then, but, like, you know, part of me thinks that this that is That is of, more of a sequel. It, I feel like Lords of Salem and Halloween 2 have more in common than Halloween and Halloween 2. I completely agree. I mean, yeah. I think that Halloween Halloween is the transitional film where he's realizing that movies can be more than just a collection of atrocious behavior. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, like Devil's, as much as I like Devil's Rejects, and I think that that movie succeeds on its own terms, which are, I mean, ghastly, but still. Yeah, <laughs> Roger Ebert agrees with you. Three stars. Yeah, and he was right. I think, uh, I think... Of of the torture porn movies, it's the most um, it's the one that most committed to its ideas. I think even more than Eli Roth, even more than like even like I don't know like Wolf Creek, I love very much. But I think that that movie is so pretty that you can kind of dissociate a little from the the horrific things on screen. You can't really do that in Devil's Rejects, which just feels like one shrieking horrible torture. Yeah, like you're you along know. for the ride with those fucking people. Exactly. And, that, yeah. yeah, it feels very 70s in that way. Whereas something like Wolf Creek is a little more Texas Chainsaw, where if you wanted to, you could just pay attention to the craft. Um, 
you know, it's difficult to do, but it's possible. And uh, Devil's Reject is not really like that, where it feels like you're looking at, like, that's a movie that genuinely feels like like crime scene footage. <laughs> like, somebody yeah. released the record of these murders. Like, the movie Snuff, I don't know if you guys have seen that. Like, that was purported to be this thing that they, like, dredged up in Argentina or some right. bullshit. And they're like, oh, they're really killing people in this. And they're like, no, you're not. They're, they're studio lights. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, that, Devil's Reject is the closest a mainstream, you know, fucking whatever, four-quadrant movie or whatever they call those, uh, felt to real danger. Totally. Um, and I least- think there's a little of that here, especially in the opening when it's just, like, Lori on the, like, almost like an autopsy table. She's not dead. Yeah. But, like, they're, like, looking at her fucking fingernails and her hand. And, like, I've never seen slasher movie viscera and gore be that, like, medically accurate, I guess. And yep. just, like, horrific. Like, genuinely horrific. It was, it's like, it's a little like the bit in No Country for Old Men where uh, Shigur has to clean his wounds in the hotel room. Yeah. Except that, unlike that character who is meant to not feel things and, like, pain is a sign of weakness and blah, 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 that whole McCarthyist, you know, uh, uh, worldview, everyone in Halloween and, and in Rob Zombie's movies in general, they scream when bad things happen, which makes it that much harder to both, like, watch and not watch. You yeah. can't look away from the things that everybody is going through in this film. Which I think is like, that is such a loving gesture in its horrifying way, where he really believed in his characters and that if he was going to do this again with them, he was going to make sure that you remembered everything that they went through. That this wasn't just studio product. It wasn't that he made the movie because the movie needed to be made. It was, he was going to do the logical thing with this and make you sit through, you know, rehab and therapy and surgery and like actually understand what it means to have gone through all this because that ultimately is. That's the that's like the Rob Zombie ethos is that every knife wound in other movies is just fiction, and he kind of wants it to mean more in his movies. And I love also about Rob Zombie that when they interview him, he doesn't say shit. He doesn't talk about any of this stuff. He doesn't like he doesn't have all these like kind of canned therapeutic answers about like the function of horror movies. He leaves that to us. To I was do. just gonna he, say like I think he's a fan of your work, Scout. Am I wrong? He's read a piece of yours. Am I crazy? He read. He read my, I, I don't know that he saw my Lords of Salem video. I hope that he has because that's, I, I love that. But he definitely read and used my review for Ebert from Three From Hell. Yes, because uh, you gave Three From Hell like a four star on RogerEbert.com review. I think I was the only person. Well, of course. <laughs> of course you're the only person. That's <laughs> the most scout thing I've ever heard in my life. And I love it. it was, <laughs> I, but the thing was, is that like I was, you know, the, the, the thing I think that sometimes gets lost, especially as the kind of lines between people like me and the makers of these bigger, you know, movies, especially genre cinema, that, that line is so easily blurred. I mean, you look at, like, Scott Weinberg and people like that, Walter Shaw, you know, these are, you know, however good they are at their job, and Walter is frequently an incredibly, incredible writer, like, there is this sense of, like, camaraderie with the people that you're doing these things with. But Rob Zombie is not really that guy. Like, yeah. Rob Zombie hasn't reached out to me. He hasn't said any of these things, at which puts me in a position where I can still be very excited for the stuff that he does right. and like the impulses where I can kind of guess where he's going to go, but I can't really predict it always because he is genuinely unpredictable. And what I was, when I was listening to these commentaries, I think I was expecting or hoping that he would talk about the things you're talking about and be like, yeah, I made this movie because fuck the studio. I want them to sit in this trauma. He doesn't really say that shit. And like, he just, no. all he talks about when he talks about, making these movies is like 
oh, this day was hard to shoot for these reasons. Like, very technical yeah. stuff. Just like, oh, this day was a nightmare because of the rain. Like, that's the information <laughs> I get from him. Which is like, you know, if you're interested in that stuff and technical filmmaking, it's interesting. But I constantly am just like, Rob, tell me what Scout is telling me. Tell me the stuff. Like, I want to hear it no, from the horse's mouth. You know what I mean? Right. That's the thing, is that if he starts doing it, then I'm out of a job. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But, like, without the Scout to Foyas, does the Halloween movie catch on? Does, do people understand it and, like, I know what they, it means? I think they do. I just think that it never it, – without, without – uh, I should say this. Because I have the, the, uh, like the, the, the audience that I do, limited as it is, and certainly limited to sort of margins of, of critical culture, I think that – it still happens. You just don't hear about it. That's the difference. If you know, without like Willow, uh, Caitlin McClay writing about it and talking about it on her social media feed and on her amazing Patreon. Her reviews on uh, Letterbox. She put her Patreon exactly, thing on yeah. Letterbox. It was the best thing I've read about it besides your nylon piece. Thank you so much. Um, and that's the thing is that without without a couple of us in mainstream criticism doing it, it's still this work is still being done. It's just not happening near ish the mainstream because. A movie like this really isn't for, you know, like whatever mainstream consumption so much as it's for people who need it. It's for people who are in bad domestic situations or bad, you know, if they're like parents don't understand them. Like people who so have been through you're saying the everyday like, drama. Just being seen on screen in that way, even though it's like not a it's like a gruesome, horrifying, scary horror movie depiction of these things, just by the virtue that Rob Zombie made a movie in which a victim is treated in this way, it's cathartic still. I yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. And I think that the thing the thing like my my particular critical bailiwick is picking movies that were kind of shunted off to the side for this reason or that. And in so doing, what I hear most frequently from people, you know, other than just the, well, this movie is still terrible. It's like, dude, I know, shut up. But the <laughs> the other thing that I hear is I thought I was the only one who liked it. You, I hear that so often, yeah. especially when it comes to movies like this, where they really did strike a chord with people um, in, a, in a way that you don't quite realize, because again, it's not the mainstream narrative. And without Twitter or Letterboxd or Reddit or whatever it was, you know, back in the day, LiveJournal and Zanga and MySpace and all that shit, that was where people who respond to works of art like this, which are kind of dissonant and strange and have these really bizarre cultural reference points, you know, like this movie in particular also is like he does a lot of stuff to deliberately link this to um, Texas Chainsaw 2, um, where he casts Carolyn. Uh, yeah, you know, I was going to say as, as the, the nurse. Yeah, or the doctor. Yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, Dwayne Whitaker, who was in a bunch of Toby Hooper movies. Like this is the closest he got to like pure sort of Toby Hooper thing where the like the craft and quality is undeniable. Um, but he really does want you to get lost, sort of, you know, synesthetically speaking, inside the texture of the movie, where you really do feel these things. And, you know, that, it, he achieves it through very strange means, but in my opinion, he does achieve it. I think Lords of Salem is perhaps the easier film to sink into because it lacks, for instance, this movie's media critique, which has to be larger than life in order for it to really say where it's got to. So it doesn't have the whole thing where... Samuel Loomis is going on the Chris Hardwick show with Weird Al. Weird Al, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, I think, the only part of this movie that I don't love, but I get why he did it. Um, but uh, uh, Lord of Salem doesn't have that that angle to it. It, it. I mean, it does a little bit in the whole radio station thing where they're doing the fucking shock jock soundboard. Yeah, right. In general, 
this movie is so unsparing and gripping emotionally that even when you're watching, you know, strippers and band sex and all this other weird stuff, you're still in this world. You're still in this world where it feels like somebody is denying you the, like the lights. They just like won't turn the lights on in right. this world. What I think is interesting, and Jesse, if you could jump in here, I think this movie successfully pulls off what other, honestly, more lauded entries like H2O and the 2018 David Gordon Green are trying to do with regard to lingering trauma. Like, the lingering trauma thing we've mentioned on the H2O episode, and we will again (laughs) next week, I'm sure, but, like, these movies are all about the trauma, and then you watch this one, you're like, no, they fucking aren't. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that is that's something that I reacted to really strongly about this is that it really it's interesting as like kind of particularly as a sequel too in that way because it's you know it's kind of pointed. I have no idea. Like you said, Zombie doesn't always talk about this kind of stuff, but like if the beginning of this movie being a mini remake of basically like most of Halloween two, it's like most of the old Halloween two done in like ten minutes. Yeah. Um, and, and done better, I think, than, yes. than a lot of the actual Halloween too. Agreed. Um, yeah. Makes a really interesting kind of point where the kind of normal sequel thing of like you can just pick up where the last one ended and then there's just like more of this shit happening. Here is like a literal nightmare that she's having and then it follows her, you know, depending on which cut you're watching one to two years later, presumably <laughs> as long as she'll she'll be alive, it'll follow her. And I did find that really effective. I don't always know that, I don't know that zombies always that articulate as that's a, what as i'm saying i'm like i need him to tell me or else i'm just gonna assume scout well, I mean, found even, it and yeah, figured even, it out even in the films <laughs> itself I, exactly i kind of think scout kind of puts it more beautifully than even sometimes the movies themselves do even just talking about not talking about like dialogue saying these things out loud but just like although i think he does have some great imagery and stuff he will sometimes it sometimes even visually to me is a little bit clunky you know they're like white horse like you know, thing with his, where he has to have the mom and the white horse appearing in vision. It's like, can, can be a little like overly literal for my taste, considering how powerful that idea is to me without the like weird psychic connection kind of, you know, thing, which again is like. Talk about things that other Halloween sequels have tried to do. Yeah, yeah. But I do think that is some, that's like a real strength of this movie is that it really does own up to. The fact that like it's a sequel should not a horror sequel should not just be like it happens again to the same people as Scott said and you know typically the arc is for it to be like a little sillier gorier but also lighter you know like nastier but also who cares like and this really goes further in terms of like the emotional stuff that does kind of work about the first movie and gets rid of all the kind of not, not all of it actually because i don't think zombies capable of getting i mean the loomis thing is is a good example of that where i feel like i just like zombies the zombie humor is just like not my not my deal <laughs> and the loomis stuff though i love that idea of loomis of him being like just kind of a craven avaricious yeah like, ra- uh, zombie compares him to bugliosi like the guy who you know wrote yeah. helter skelter yeah, yeah. I love that idea. I don't think that zombie. This is where I think you know where his writing, as 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 I had the problem with in the first his first Halloween movie and some of his other movies, the writing falls down a little bit because he doesn't. I don't think he writes as funny or as nuanced a portrait of this kind of character in Loomis as would really serve what he's doing, especially the way the movie turns, what the movie does with Loomis at the end. It just kind of feels like, oh, you were watching a lot. In the director's cut, there's even more of like. Loomis being a dick yeah. <laughs> and, like, not learning his lesson. And he's already kind of done that 
in the first movie. Yeah, I mentioned so last are... week that I liked that Loomis is kind of half a doctor and half like exploiting the situation. And here yeah, it's like, yeah. he's fully gone and off it, the deep end. Yeah. And weirdly, this one, though, it's the least kind of straight horror of anything in the movie. It's also kind of the most slasher sequely to me, where it's like, okay, he's doing the same thing with Loomis, except it's like both nastier and broader, like in a, in a weird way. So that stuff, yeah, I think I agree with Scout. That's like the stuff and him on going on Chris Hardwick with Weird Al doing cracking jokes and stuff. It's just, it's also just like where the remove from reality, which is obviously always going to happen with zombies movies, really starts to become noticeable because you're like, this is a late night talk show where they invite <laughs> a doctor on to make fun of him. Well, he, <laughs> like, just... Zombie said for that, he said he got he got Weird Al the day of. It was like Chris Hardwick. <laughs> he got Chris Hardwick, and Hardwick's like, I had dinner with Al last night. You want me to see if he would do it? And he said, yeah, and they flew him in the next day, and that was it. Um, so, like, and his idea was, like, you know, we want to show that Loomis is just, like, he's so silly, he's on a fucking TV show next to Weird Al. Like, that's how yeah. silly his life yeah. has become. But, like, yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like it's a lot that before they brought yeah. that out. <laughs> right. I, I, I think the problem, the problem ultimately is that it like, it sort of hints at a wider world in a way that I don't think necessarily serves the world of this story where Haddonfield yeah. is such a fucking nightmare town and a completely <laughs> like, it's like such a twilight zone location that by bringing na like national attention in that way, it kind of opens it up in a way that I don't think serves the story where yeah. the idea that you still have, like, for instance, all the stuff at the, um, at Sheriff Brackett's house feels so removed and so tucked away in such a kind of productive fashion where they're literally like living where no one can find them and going through all their traumatic issues by themselves out there. Like, you know, there's a kind of a safety to that and like that, that's the mechanism, but he still finds them anyway. And all the stuff with Brad Dourif, I think is the strongest that this movie gets yep. where when yeah. he like, first of all, him trying to be a normal dad is so endearing and so watchable. He's like the he's best doing... fucking actor in the world who is only he relegated is the best. to like a character actor. Yeah. I, I think Brad Dourif is indeed probably my favorite like living male actor i think that that he's definitely my favorite be... voice of chucky <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't like mark hamill <laughs> <laughs> it was un i did kind of like it but it was not it was not brad Dorf. not the same not the same yeah now brad Dorf, i think brad and especially he's another guy that 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 toby hooper would i'm sorry that toby hooper used um he's in spontaneous combustion for instance and i, I just i think he does he's allowed to do better work in genre stuff like on deadwood and here than he is in, in other projects, as good as he is in normal shit. I mean, like, you know, I, I, and again, the reason that people like Rob Zombie and Peter Jackson know him is because he did such hard work in the fucking trenches back in the day where, you know, he's whatever, he's in prestige shit like Ragtime and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but in weird things like fucking Spontaneous Combustion and... His um, performance in um, Exorcist 3, of course, is, like, legendary, but, like, yeah. we talked about in this podcast, I'm sure you know, because you know everything about movies, but, like, he <laughs> shot that... He shot that whole thing, and it was, like, incredible. And, like, none of that footage is even in the movie because they had to reshoot it when they cast Jason Miller in that, like, yep. dual role. So, like, the guy is just – he's the man. Yeah. I love him. He's incredible. He's he's absolutely just – Yeah, real and, heartbreaking and, and, here. Yeah, yeah, and that whole – the whole bit, and they they, ex they extended in the director's cut where he goes in and he finds Annie Bradditt. He finds his daughter on the floor of the bathroom, like, in just – and, again – 
that's that's the stuff that I know that Rob Zombie would do that nobody else would because you can't nobody else would have made that crime scene look as fucking horrifying as he would have. Yeah. And then nobody also would have done a thing where her father mourns her on screen in agonizing fucking screams and wailing. And then that thing where they find him later on the porch swing yeah. looking just completely lost. Like yeah. that is like I don't know why it took what is it, 10 movies for them to get to a moment where you're like, oh, that's what it feels like. That's what it's like when somebody comes into your life and stabs somebody that you know and completely upends your your worldview and your belief system and everything you thought was good and normal is no longer true. Yeah, like, and the way he like cuts in the seven-year-old Annie photo, like, oh, oh my God. God. It's almost like, I want to say, a critic of this movie, like maybe if Jesse didn't find that effective, uh, would say like that's cheap and manipulative, but I just buy this movie's. I just I'm put I'm picking up what it's putting down, and like Same. I'm on that level where it's like yeah this is gutting me the way he, Zombie intended it to. Well, it's so interesting yeah. to me that he uses Danielle Harris in this part in the in the first movie and in the second yeah. one, yeah. which so like it's almost it's not satirical because the movie is like ultimately trying to be pretty serious. But it, it does kind of read as like a scan as sort of a critique of other Halloween sequels and just their very existence where Daniel Harris is certainly in multiple Halloween sequels and never really well served and never really kind of back off from what happens to her character when she's a child at the end of Halloween 4. And then, you know, just sort of end up eventually, ultimately end up discarding her in kind of a, in brutal and in kind of thoughtless ways. In this movie, she does it, she does meet a terrible end but it is so much more wrenching and it's not even her character from the Halloween continuity or whatever. They just give her like a real person to play yep. and it kind of, it makes you really aware of how ill served actors and characters are by a lot of these horror sequels when he kind of repurposes someone from the kind of Halloween legend or whatever and gives her someone who feels a lot more close to the ground to play. And it's a really nice performance and, and, and also very sad. Extremely sad. And, and I like, I like what you're saying there about like, giving someone a real person to play because that that i find to be true of of everyone in zombies movies no matter how small the parts like i think my favorite moment in the first halloween movie is probably the 10 seconds where annie brackett comes to pick up laurie strode to take her to you know their babysitting gig and it's d wallace and the guy who plays the dad his name escapes me um sitting on the stoop just having a normal conversation about like sheriff brackett and the vacation and like smoking weed and i was like oh my god it's real people in a movie <laughs> like yeah and, and you know to give that to d wallace who is so often you know the mom in movies without it being sort of without it like reading as like a normal thing to show that she still had it like she still absolutely had the fucking chops fucking however 30 years after cujo and and uh, the howling it was like fuck, this guy really does love actors and like respects what they're capable of and I just like, I fucking, I just love it. Like, you know, and again, you know, because these are just jobs for these people, the idea that he's like really letting them have fun and like be real people and themselves. It's just like, what a gift that must be. You know, if you're yeah. Daniel Roebuck or Jeff Daniel Phillips or, or Richard Brake to get these canvases to fucking paint, like what a gift that must be. And not even, we haven't even gotten to like the visuals yet. There are so many striking visuals in this movie that I won't shake. The most, 
the one I see in my mind's eye right now is like that kid in the uh, might be in the clown costume. I think the kid who runs up to him in the street and just yeah, looks up, God, yeah. just looks up into his fucking like hooded face and like the fucking eyes. It almost looks yeah. like Rob Zombie, but I know it's Tyler. It does Lane. look like Rob Zombie. I mean, like in profile, like with the beard in yes. profile, it's it fully yeah, looks uh, like Rob Zombie. If you told me that was him I as a cameo, I would believe it. Um, <laughs> but it's genuinely the scariest image in any of these movies. I think like it. I, I, I rewound it and watched it again. I was just like, Jesus, that is so scary. Um, the whole, the thing where Mark Boone Jr. and uh, what's his name? Dwayne, uh, um, uh, God damn it. Uh, Dwayne Whitaker, where they find him in the field and try to kill him with the bats. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. That yeah, yeah. shit is fucking terrifying. When he weird. first puts on the mask and like the way it's yep. lit. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. He. The blue lights in this fucking trust, like cranking up the blue filters and the white lights and the blue lights and it's like, it is so gorgeous, but it's also so stark and fucking eerie. There's also yeah, that. There's... Yeah. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say that there's um, that you watching this movie. This is true to some extent of the earlier zombie Halloween, but especially this one after watching all the other ones, it's uh so clear it kind of in retrospect it makes me like some of the other ones less or at least feel less warm towards the kind of what i identified at the time as being like well none of these movies are spectacularly well made but they're you know they've got that kind of core competency that you sometimes see surprised to a surprising degree in like 80s and 90s slasher movies where you're like oh this is just kind of like the baseline for being re okay you know crap yeah, <laughs> yeah it's there it's, uh, but in this, watching this, I was like, oh, this is like the most, uh, easily the most visually interesting one since the first Carpenter one. And yeah. it makes you realize how kind of dull looking the other ones are, even though they have some cool flourishes or like some, you know, they're not usually incoherent to watch or anything like that. But this has a real kind of visual personality and there are memorable shots. There's lots of like kind of the smeary kind of reflective shots that they do with that kind of make him look like he's through some kind of haze are really memorable. And there were images watching this again after after 11, 11 years later where I was like, oh yeah, I remember this from watching it in 2009, which is a yep. major accomplishment for a movie I had not seen since then. Yeah. Yeah, I to I totally agree with that. There's that scene that um I actually found out in the commentary that this was something they like he thought up at the moment because the rain ruined the outdoor scene that they had written. But it's that dream sequence which like we're in Michael's mind and we see like the skeleton with the Michael mask on the top of it, and there's like the Halloween goblin creatures at like a dinner table. Yeah, uh -huh. that haunting <laughs> imagery is so fucking amazing, and it's just like. I would hate this if it were shot by anybody else, but like Rob Zombie <laughs> made that scene fucking work. Like there's this creepy like pumpkin head goblin creatures and uh, just like a skeleton with a Michael mask on it. But it looks, it genuinely fits the look of the movie. Um, yeah. It's just a harrowing and devastating and heartbreaking movie. And I feel like it really earns all of that. And yeah, Brad Dourif certainly doesn't hurt. God, yeah, him, him, like running up the stairs, like already knowing that it's happened. I and know then, it hurts. Uh, Love hurts. God, so... Love smarts. Yeah. Or whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you guys have thought, have feelings slash opinions about the? Because I, I'm in this weird position of having seen the theatrical cut, which I know a lot of people. Uh, Willow's review, I think that you mentioned from Letterbox, talking about hating the theatrical cut or like or saying that it's worthless. Do you and I've seen so I've seen this weird one and a half. I've seen like Halloween two and Halloween two point two or something where like Brett and I were talking about weird DVD releases, where I've seen like a hybrid version uh, as well as the theatrical cut. Is the director? Would you guys say that the, the theatrical cut is like ignore this, don't watch it in favor of the director's cut, or do you feel like they're kind of doing slightly different things in equal ways, or what's what's the deal here? 
I think you can get a lot out of the theatrical cut. I saw the theatrical I went and saw that in theaters, and it was I enjoyed it. But I think that ultimately the director's cut is the like pure distillation of what Rob Zombie brings to a project at his best. And it's just so much more heartbreaking and so much more effective mm-hmm. um, when you watch the, the director's yeah. cut. Yeah, and when I watched the director's cut with commentary, a lot of it you find out is basically Rob was like, yeah, this was something I cut at the last minute, and then I've never, you know, I watched the theatrical version, and I thought this would add color. So it really is just a lot of, some of it's really minor, like an insert hit here and an insert there that really just all helps his ultimate vision of, like, I'm making a movie about the victim, Laurie Strode, not about the killer, Michael Myers. And I think yeah. the director's cut really underscores that. And I I haven't seen the theatrical since theaters because it's not on the very fancy, expensive Shout Factory set. It's not in there. <laughs> you have to get, like, a Canadian Blu-ray if you want <laughs> the theatrical. Uh, um, but... What is? Do you remember, or Jesse? Did you read how the theatrical ends and how it's different? Yeah, I didn't really remember. I know that the, I guess the shot is the, the very last shot is the same with her in the room in the white room. Yeah. and I guess I, I did read that in the theatrical, the, she uh, is now 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 I'm blanking. What had happened? She doesn't. She's she doesn't take the knife. She's like. And, and he doesn't shout die at Loomis. I yeah, I think she, it says she, the police discover Michael's location, blah, blah, blah. Loomis arrives and goes inside to try to reason with Michael. But when he tried to resuscitate Lori from her hallucinations, Michael grabs Loomis and stabs him to death before being shot through the cabin window by Brackett and impaled on a rake. Apparently released from her visions, Lori walks over to Michael and stabs him to death with his own knife. The shed door opens and Lori walks out wearing Michael's mask. Oh right, and the, and the sort of the you know the Halloween four style implication. The, yeah. The, the and then in the yeah. You know so what? The, this is kind of wildly different. So it ends with her taking the mask, and then later Lori yeah. sits in isolation in a psychiatric ward. In the director's cut, not only because I watched it twice and like the th- and and he explained it on the director's cut commentary, but like the ending in the director's cut, hundred percent at least to Rob Zombie is like Lori is dead. And this yeah. shot of her in the psychiatric ward is just like a flourish, a visual flourish that shows she is like with her mother. It is not at meaning to say she's in a psychiatric ward, whereas yeah, the theatrical yeah, version that, seems to yeah. saying she's in a theatrical <laughs> or which, in, in a yeah, psychiatric in ward. Which is, yeah, and it tracks much more than it's a dream thing because it's like not actually, it doesn't actually look like a psych ward. It looks like a music video. Like, you know, yeah, it's a long yeah. hallway. You know what it looks like? It looks like that one... Coming. That one shot in Incredible Melting Man with the nurse running down the uh, the center of the ward there after being attacked by uh, the Incredible the incredi- Melting the Man. The titular Incredible Melting Man. The, the eponymous Melting Man. <laughs> so pretty definitive differences there in the theatrical and director's cut endings, at least what the implications are. Even like Even though it's the same shot, it's totally different. It's like the Godfather Coda. The ending is totally different. Yes. <laughs> even though it's the same. Yes. But also a little different. Um, I, I'm, I'm of a mind that if you like somebody's version of the world that they create, like, I don't know why you wouldn't want to spend more time there on yeah. their terms, but I understand that that's not everybody. Yeah. I think that is fair for this version, for sure. What, what's, what's so weird to me about the, the, the I, I certainly understand, uh, at least based on what I've seen, that the director's cut is less palatable and, and is more you know i think that with the difference i read that was most different most uh pronounced besides like the specifics of the ending are just that 
Laurie, I think Zombie himself even described it this way. In, in the theatrical cut, Laurie is like barely holding it together and sort of goes into a spiral. And in this one, she's like, you know, less barely holding it together and is kind of kind of fucked from the start. And I can see how dramatically you might say, well, maybe it makes more sense for her to have a spiral rather than start off bad and get worse. Um, but I was surprised, like, so I guess the idea would be to make it slightly more palatable by, by you know, kind of softening her character or making characters seem a little more together at the beginning part of the movie. But at the same time, does it make that movie wildly more commercial? Like, is the, is the theatrical cut of Halloween 2, su- like, suddenly this crowd pleaser? <laughs> uh, so it's just, like, a weird thing to me that, that they wanted Rob Zombie to do this sequel. But then when he did it, it was like, it's not as if the theatrical cut is much more in line with the previous movie, which itself is not exactly a crowd pleaser, but was a big, you know, a pretty big hit. So it's weird to me that there was some kind of tug of war about. Yeah, I, I honestly, from listening, I want to say it was less like them saying, cut this and Rob just like making his movie and then shaving off too much. And then being Uh, like, Oh yeah, I wanted to add this more back uh, again. uh, I think that's, that's my read from the commentary, but I, I, there's not, there's not a lot of information available. Um, yeah, and that I mean, kind of makes more sense to me in that I feel like watching, as someone who's you know sort of agnostic about zombie stuff, watching the, his first crack at Halloween, it kind of feels like he's figuring it out and like like you know I like really like about half of that movie and it doesn't completely work for me, and then I feel like he gets two is much more you know both distinct from the first one and distinct from other Halloween movies and even in some ways I think distinct from his other movies that I've seen in a way that I'm like oh he's really is starting to figure out what like where his where it makes sense to overlap his interests with Halloween so I could see how more time (laughs) would help even more to kind of clarify that because he is like a filmmaker you know it's not like he's he's not an amateur or anything at this point, but like he was, this was like his third feature, fourth feature, I guess fourth feature after this first Halloween. Malika Khan had, oh, go ahead, sorry. Oh no, I was just gonna say he's, you know, so I could see him still kind of like working it out a little bit, which I hope that doesn't sound condescending, just that I think, you know, having some time to marinate with it maybe maybe helped the film. I think why I like this one so much more than the first Rob Zombie Halloween is what Malik says here. Malik Akkad said, the fact that Rob was doing a remake, perhaps there were some constraints. He felt there were certain elements he had to be true to, but he was also able to flesh it out in his own way. But I think here, Halloween 2, he's really taking it his own direction. It's packed. It's got so many elements, so many character arcs. It's really satisfying to see where he takes each character, blah, blah. So, like, I agree that you said you liked half of the last one and my question is which half did you like the half that was rob (laughs) zombies or the half that was the carpenter movie that he just remade so like (laughs) that is like the first one is such a slave to the original to its detriment which is why i think i really respond to this one where it's like okay the origin the fucking classic halloween movie that we've all seen even if you haven't seen mine you've seen the original you can still watch this one and like understand what it is which is like what if a slasher sequel like dealt with the repercussions and consequences of a slasher movie? And it's like, yeah. it's a bold thing to have done. And um, I'm very glad it exists and I'm glad it's found his audience. And I wish I could hear Rob Zombie speak as eloquently on it as Scout and Willow has. <laughs> I guess. My, I have, my one question, this is a completely an annoying continuity nerd question. Am I wrong in thinking... Uh, Loomis got his eyes crushed by Michael Myers' horrible fingers in the first one. What happened with that? I think in one of the cuts, some... he did. Yeah, I think in one of the cuts, he that. didn't. Yeah. I see. Yeah. 
classic choose your own adventure ending to make the next one better (laughs) one of my favorite things to learn from the commentary is that malcolm mcdowell almost didn't do the sequel like they were planning on him not to be back and then at the last minute he said he would be back and he apparently shot i i want to say for maybe it was a week but i want to say like a day like they were like he came in he got a hotel. If you notice, all of his scenes, either in a car or in a hotel room. Or in a hotel. <laughs> yeah, it's it. They said they got him. They picked him up at the airport and, like, got him a hotel room. They did, like, the symposium thing or whatever um, at, like, a ho- in the hotel. And then, like, they shot another scene in his in his bedroom at the hotel. And, like, yeah. that was it. Yeah. So, like, uh, Rob Zombie's very resourceful. There's a lot of things <laughs> like that where I was just like. Well, that's yeah. three, three from Hell is, to me, the ultimate in budgets. Uh, like genre filmmaking where yeah. that movie almost feels like a fucking Timur Bekmambatov screen life movie where he's like, who do I have? Who do I have access to right now? Yeah. Like, you know, what's, 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 what's going on? So he gets like, you know, he like puts Austin Stoker in a newscaster thing miles away from everybody else just to incorporate that footage in the main movie. It just feels like he shot 40 different people at different times and places, and he edited them all together. Like, it's just, I love that about him, that he'll just do what has to be done. Yeah. I'm trying like, to, who's I'm look- around today? <laughs> I'm just looking at my notes for random stray things, and um, one thing I really liked is the visual, this is like film school 101 shit, but like the the visual similarities between uh, Laurie and Michael in this one, like it'll cut from like decrepit, hoodie michael looking all raggedy to look to Lori looking the same and it's like uh yeah i get what you're doing here but uh that also reminds me of something i want to talk about which is like was it halloween four or five what one of them i think it's five that deals with like the psychic connection between them it's isn't it four that like ends with the implication that it's a thing and then five kind of explores yeah. it a little bit so like yes. that's a thing that is, was done pretty poorly and like i think in this one zombie figured out how to do that in a way that i thought worked in the movie and didn't feel forced jesse do you think it felt forced like the i mean i think it felt uh, this is gonna be sound a little mean but i felt like it felt forced in the sense that he felt he forced himself to include cherry moon zombie in as much of the movie as possible (laughs) despite her character being dead um yeah which you know she's fine. Like I don't have a huge problem. She's with fine her, here I, when she doesn't have to say anything. When just like look <laughs> imposing, which she does. Yeah, she's I, got a great I, look I about like, her. Yeah, I I do think some of that stuff was a little bit. I wouldn't say forced, but I would think could be a little more intuitive and a little less like defining the vision. The vision she's having at the at the top of the movie on screen, well, and then like sticking to that vision so kind of carefully. I kind of like when it kind of, as you mentioned with the the you know scene at the t- the vision she has of the people at the table and all those horrible masks that kind of stuff i had like a little more than like there's a woman with a white horse and here she is again the it's woman so with the funny white horse, but... because you were so close to getting a movie with no white horse because rob zombie <laughs> just happened to see a white horse like on the set or near the set and like wrote it in like wrote the whole i don't know what it was what the element was before the horse i'm sure it was there but like he saw a white horse thought it looked really cool <laughs> and just decided to get one and another fun fact i learned is that i guess uh, someone at the airport x-rayed all their film uh one of the days so they basically oh, had a whole day that they had to redo and it included oh. the horse which they had to get again like <laughs> and like uh it was one of the one of the corner guys like was gone went home and then they were like hey all the footage got x-rayed you have to come back until they flew him back to shoot like the scene where he talks about fucking a corpse again (laughs) like so like i appreciate i guess i do appreciate the rob zombie technical commentaries in that 
he gets <laughs> shit done. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I I love the yeah. idea that Richard Brake had to come back to do that monologue again. Yeah, it's really <laughs> silly. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, I think what what Jesse was just saying, like the that scene that we both like with the the creepy visuals, like that's what Rob was like. This is a glimpse into the way Michael sees the world, and like yeah. I love that shit, and like I wish there were more of it, but I. I guess I guess you're right. I guess I I'm with Jesse in that if the white horse were replaced with those creepy fucking other stuff and like the otherworldly stuff was still there, like I guess it could be it could have been handled better. But or really, really Scott it and do a unicorn. I think I would have liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I I did really. I one thing actually I really like visually about this movie is the kind of desiccated version of Michael Myers where it's he's barely covered by a mask and he's still mysterious. Yes. You still don't know what his oh, face looks like. And in the director's oh, yeah. cut, you see his face in daylight. In the theatrical oh. cut, you don't. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. I, in, like I, I did see a shot of that and I was like, oh, just looking straight into Michael yeah, Myers. Just a dude face. just with a beard, a bearded giant man walking around. Yeah. And I did find that, you know, after so many movies where they so studiously hide his face and voice until you wonder if he's human as much as brett you did say you mentioned how they this gets at him as the shape much better than a lot of those yes but at the same time it definitely gets him as a human too yeah i was gonna say it's i think it's i think that's absolutely true and also gets better him as a as someone who used to be a person even if he's not you know exactly you know i think that's very well put because the whole other first movie the whole hour of the first movie is like look at him he was a person he was a person and now his mom is dead and he's now just all the Hulk, uh, a shell of a person who doesn't even speak anymore. Yeah. yeah. And also, also, I'm in favor of any you know like uh, re- franchise reboot that reimagines the famous character as a hobo-like figure. Uh, <laughs> yes. That's what I liked about the first half of Man of Steel is that the hobo Superman. That's why I love the. We've Wolverine. already had the hobo. Well, we got ho- hobo Michael hanging. We got Michael hanging out with a hobo. Yeah. We've never had like, hobo I, Michael. That, that was that was pretty good, but I like <laughs> him here as a real hobo. I mean, because he's been living a hobo lifestyle. He, like, leaves... He kills those dudes in the end. either one the or two years. <laughs> yeah. He knows the <laughs> one, hobo he's been one or two years just, like, wandering around, eating animals off, you know, whatever, eating dogs or whatever, um, and, like, presumably, you know, grunting and, oh, and wandering and stuff. I want to say something. This may have been a deleted scene. I want to make sure it was. The scene where she's eating dinner and throws up, is there anything intercut yes. with that? Or does she just go throw up? Yeah, that's in the in the version I watched. There was something intercut, right? Is She's, it intercut it, with Michael eating a dead dog? I, that's what I thought. Is that what it is? Yeah, I, that, I might be misremembering. Like I might have misinterpreted what was happening in that scene, but that is what I thought. Yeah, was okay. That Either scene. in the director's cut or a deleted <laughs> like scene. Intercut dog. with her getting sick at dinner is Michael like going to town on a dead dog, just eating <laughs> it. <laughs> I guess I can see there, thinking about it more, maybe I can see where the director's cut would be a little further for some audiences. Yeah, it's great. Well, it's like, you think there's a psychic connection? How about an esophageal connection? That's right. (laughs) Yeah. I do really love, I I do, like, one of the, some of the stuff that I immediately responded to in this movie when I first saw it was that stuff with Brad Dourif and the the girls at home. Just, like, bickering about what kind of pizza to order. I was Absolutely. like, that, yeah, the cardboard really nice gluten free or whatever the hell that she yeah, wanted. Whole wheat crust. Yeah. Whole wheat yep. crust. Yeah. And that's the stuff that I think was, you know, it's a little bit there in the earlier zombie Halloween, but it kind of gets drowned out for me and all of that as, in all the, as, all uh, the as, as on your flappy tits. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That girl's got quite a dumper on her. <laughs> yeah. 
exactly. Like that stuff is, you know, there's still, I fish the dialogue is still heightened in this. And I think the way that the girls talk to each other definitely sounds a little more like what Robbie, Rob Zombie would talk to girls like if he were a girl than what I think a lot of girls that age actually sound like. But there is so it does it's so much more of a humanity is like it's teased out in those scenes and it feels so much like I don't know it just feels like it's you know there's like something kind of dirtbaggy about it but it's also very kind of like sweet and naturalistic in its weird way that I yeah really respond to. Well, I think the scene, for instance, when they're in the coffee shop, that got pretty close. Like I've, I I I I remember seeing it at the time and thinking I have heard young women talk like this, like uh-huh. it, you know, and and that's that's certainly more than can be said for anything in devil's rejects oh yeah are we talking about like horny angela trimber like yeah yes yeah yes. exactly exactly doing great work and yeah. uh, brie grant brie grant lately of 12 hour shift oh that's right um anything else to talk about oh funny thing the guy you mentioned who i said gets his head bashed in what's his name oh uh uh jeff daniel phillips yeah well rob said he cast him because he was the caveman in the geico commercials and he loved that <laughs> That was a fun detail. I, I I have a theory that Rob Zombie is a little like Val Kilmer in that I think half of the stories he tells are fake and they just sound funny to him while he's <laughs> doing them. And because his name is Rob Zombie and he looks yeah. the way he does, nobody ever questions yeah, absolutely. Him. Well, there's all these cryptic articles I found when it's like, I was going to say, like, we, you already mentioned it, but like Halloween 3D was quickly put in development and then fell apart. There's all these cryptic things that Rob was like, oh, you'll find out one day why I couldn't do Halloween 3. And it's like, no, you just didn't want to do it. Like, he very cryptically said, there's like a reason and I'll tell you and you'll find out one day. And it's like, no, it's been it's been 11 years. No one has found out. It's not going to happen. I I remember, too, um, somebody telling me that they saw a and a with him after Lords of Salem. And they were like, what's the significance of the um, of the George Melier trip to the moon poster in her bedroom? And he's like. I don't know. I like that movie. I guess <laughs> like yeah. I like that thing where it's just like, do the work, do the work yourself. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, at that screening of The Irishman when anytime Joe yes. Pesci got a question, not only would he not say anything, he would have his like lady sitting next to him translate or tell him what it was again, and then yeah. he would be like, yeah. no, <laughs> and that yeah. would be his answer. It was incredible. <laughs> Um, that was some next level trolling. That fucking rule. That's exactly what you should do, by the way, when you're at a Lincoln Center Q and A. Yeah. Bring a translator, even though you speak English, and then yeah. never answer any of the questions. Yeah. What was that? Have talk to my woman over here. She'll, she'll yeah, tell. To, she'll, she'll tell me, and we'll get through it. Um, I don't know if there's anything else. We don't need to go through the plot of this one. It's pretty much. No. Uh, it's, we talk. It, this movie's not about plot. It's about. <laughs> it's about feeling. Transcends plot. Listen, like Tenet before us, don't <laughs> think about it. Just feel it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess we've talked it through enough, but I just want to say it again on record. I think this is, next to Hall- next to John Carpenter's Halloween, this is my favorite Halloween movie. This is a singular experience that no other horror sequel even tries or attempts to be a movie this grim and just like, I guess I would say anti-audience. Like, just like, it's yeah. not an audience-friendly movie. Like, I would love to go look at the cinema score for this movie. I'm sure it's horrible. <laughs> no, God. Well, it's, it's, at the same time, I feel like it is, I mean, it's interesting because it has a warmth, a certain warmth to some of it. I mean, I think the characters in it are are pretty audience-friendly. They're likable and, like, believable and all that. But, yes, at the, what happens to them is all pretty, it's like, all pretty much uh, cast that away. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, no, I, I will go even further than Jesse and say that this is my favorite Halloween movie, full stop. Um, I think Rob Zombie made much, I'm sorry, Rob Zombie, John Carpenter made better movies almost immediately after Halloween. I think that basically the run from Elvis to Prince of Darkness is basically unparalleled. Um, and I think that every one of those movies is at least fascinating, if not outright amazing. Um, and I just don't think that Halloween is quite up to that standard because like we're, like we were saying with Rob Zombie and Halloween, he was still kind of working out what he wanted to say and how he wanted to say it. And I think that essentially Halloween, Halloween has a lot of great, um, like fetal carpenter touches that would grow into full blown stylistic things in the fog and in, you know, Christine and the thing. Um, but I did for my money that Halloween two, Rob Zombie's Halloween two is, is the best that anybody has done with these characters and ideas. Hard to argue that. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention that is worth mentioning because Jesse and I covered a movie of theirs in the past. Uh, French filmmakers, Julien Mori and Alessandre Bustillo were supposed to direct this movie when, when, uh, zombie wasn't interested. And it would have done a good job. They would have done a good job, I think. It would have been a completely different movie. Um, 100%. And, and um, Je- it's funny because Jesse and I, I think we both also came around on their Texas Chainsaw movie as being yeah, very I good. Like, I like that more than some of the other ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quite a, quite a, quite a yeah. positive blast here from Jesse. <laughs> yeah. um, I loved Leatherface. I thought it was beautiful. I remember talking to Nick Shager from uh, – uh, who writes for uh, a couple of different uh, websites. Nick Shager's a great critic, um, but he and I uh, argued about that one. We were, I forget what we were there to see, but he was like, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's very good. I was like, no, I, man, I know you're watching yeah. it all wrong. <laughs> I know uh, Dowd, who's a big horror guy, is also uh, not into Leatherface. I remember. I love Inside negative. so much, and I've just been, I haven't been let down by everything since, but I've just, well, Inside was just so fucked up. I, Did you see Levine? Yeah, I like I like them I like them all. I like Levine. I like okay. Among the Living just fine. Among the Living is fun. But um, nothing Among will. Among the Living is a little. Yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. I inside if you've never seen it, it's a movie where a woman is trying to rip out a baby from a pregnant woman, and uh, it's it's great. It's as great as that sounds. Um, <laughs> so that's the episode. I think this is the episode of. Uh, the New Flesh podcast about Rob Zombie's Halloween Two. Uh, we're all we're thumbs up all around. Jesse's thumb is a little lesser, less tall than the rest but, of us. But yeah, yeah, I mean, less you know effusive than Scout. Though, though I love hearing the the appreciation for it. But I would agree that this is like top tier of the Halloween movies. This is in the this is in the upper tier of them for sure. Yeah, I'm excited to rewatch the 2018 one because we've already po- I've already podcasted about it then, um, and it'll be funny to hear if I feel any differently now, cause it's not that long, it's not that far removed, but <laughs> I just rewatched all of them again. And I watched with the zombies for the first time since theater. So my take will be different. I think, um, scout, thank you for making time to do this. Thanks for having me guys. It's a blast. I'm always down to, yeah, we uh, got to have you on again. This was so much fun. Peer into the, the gospel of zombie. Absolutely. Thank you, scout. Thank you, Jesse. We'll be back next week with David Gordon green's, fantastically original originally titled Halloween <laughs> <laughs>
some hand in hand Just what I'm going through They can understand Some try to tell me Thoughts they cannot defend Just what you want to Just what we drew 